Hey guys, thanks so much for listening to the CarTech Garage. Max and Wes here to do another week in automotive history. Hope you guys are going to enjoy this one. What's yes. up, buddy? Well, you know, just a nice rainy Saturday morning. I felt like I was driving through a pond. Absolute monsoon here. here in Cincinnati. It was absolutely crazy. I mean, hydroplaning all over the place. I had some Honda Accord slam on its brakes in front of this pickup truck that was two cars ahead of me because there was some standing water in the road. And I mean, to a stop, this pickup truck goes swerving around. I'm like, man, what are these people doing? I saw three Mustangs that were spun out. Wait, was that? No, I'm sorry. Anyways, let's Any- keep continuing. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, say, sorry, Does, it, does it take owners. rain? Did you, oh, man. Sorry, that's, I'm oh, sorry. That's a low blow. Sorry, sorry. I drive a truck. I didn't spin out. We're good. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, people control your cars and use your brains, especially when behind the wheel of one. Remember, you are carrying a 3,000 plus pound wrecking ball. So, uh, June 13th, 1930. Speaking of, you know, poundage and wrecking balls, we're going to talk about a land speed record guy, Henry Seagrave, who broke the land speed record world world record three separate times um, in 26, 27, and 29. So obviously way, way back. But on this day, he passed away not at a land speed record, but a water speed record event where he had unknowingly at the time captured the water speed record and uh, turned around for a follow-up run and unfortunately had a mishap, hit a log, the boat burst and it was done anyway poor guy but the cool part was his career obviously he died Mm -hmm. at 33 but before that he certainly left a legacy i mean obviously the guy liked going fast so he's got my respect yeah (laughs) well didn't you say he fortunately got to hear that he got the record on the water but just right as he basically passed he was, that's how the story goes okay. yeah that's, that's how the story as goes. sad and ter- morbid as it is at least he got to you know I, I, that's, that that's how I like to remember the story too. You're like, yeah, that's how the, that's how it went. Yeah, I don't know if it's not true. Is, so. <laughs> but um, he was actually the the first British racer to win a Grand Prix in a British automobile. Um, he won two of them. He won the 1923 French Grand Prix and the 24 San Sebastian Grand Prix. Obviously, this was back in the 20s, so totally different, uh, you know, type of era. Totally different car. However, you know, still a talented driver and certainly had the the courage or stupidity, however you guys see it, to, to you know, a little bit of both to pilot these things. But he ended up falling on land speed records, and he absolutely loved going fast. And on March sixteenth, nineteen twenty six, he says very first land speed record in a Sunbeam Tiger, one hundred and fifty two miles an hour, which again the fastest car, the fastest man in the world at that time. This is 1926, so 150 miles an hour was at, you know, before unheard of. And the record, you know how people are, they, they always got to one-up each other. Um, only lasted for about a month until it was dry, until it was brick, broken by some other guy driving a car named Babs, which is a whole other car in its own right. Maybe we'll talk about that another time. But he ended up regaining the land speed record shortly thereafter, um, You know, it took him, I think, 10 months or so. But in 1927, he and Sunbeam had created this car called the 1000 horsepower Sunbeam, and it got nicknamed the Slug. That's an ironic name. It is indeed, (laughs) because at Daytona Beach, um, 203 miles an hour, becoming the first person to travel over 200 miles an hour. So just a year after this guy, you know, added over 50 miles an hour to his record, which is crazy. I mean, that that's a totally different type of vehicle that, that they had to design in order to get that type of speed. And once again, in the time period too, you know, that's nowadays, that's something that's 
more of a simple feat to go that fast where back then that was <laughs> you were yeah, doing this crazy was, this stuff was before you know high quality fuels and direct injection and, and efficient turbochargers like this was way before all this stuff and the aerodynamics exactly they didn't have one. wind tunnel testing you know none of that stuff and, and it's it's crazy to think so he ended up setting his final land speed record um in a new car that he had made on in, in march in 1929 it was called the golden arrow now the golden arrow went 231 miles an hour and that was courtesy of its thousand horsepower engine and it actually was a, a w12 airplane engine a napier lion engine oh wow um, yeah. So, so that's why it was the arrow. <laughs> yeah. Over a thousand horsepower and a much more aerodynamic and streamlined body. They were kind of experimenting with what would and wouldn't work, but 231 miles an hour before 1930. And that was the only time that car had ever been driven. It's just crazy. You know, thinking of these guys early on where they're doing boat racing, they're doing, taking airplane engines, putting them in cars, <laughs> you know, doing stuff in cars that really aren't meant to go that fast in today's standards, at no. least to where, you know, you and I could design, obviously if we had an abundance of money to do it, but you and I could design on a computer, throw it through a wind tunnel, simulate everything it would do, and we could take a car 300 miles an hour. Just without like, yeah. even really testing or almost dying yeah. throughout the process. Exactly. <laughs> you, you can be that confident in it. But not back in the day. It was That's it was just, trial and error. Yeah. Hey, let's serve. Let's do this. Let's throw an airplane engine in yeah, it. Yeah, like take it on a <laughs> test and then bring it back, shave it down. Take it on a test, bring it back, shave it down. And that's how they used to do it in, in Grand Prix racing, yeah. too. It's much more winging it back then, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's see Don't if this works. It. Oh, gosh. There, that's a good pun. <laughs> All right, June 14th, 1924. This one's not super interesting, but it kind of is. It just showcases Ford's production uh, efficiency growing through the years. But uh, this was the day that they basically were celebrating the 10 million Ford being made, and they uh, kind of um, made it special by having one of their drivers make a coast-to-coast trip in the 10 million Ford, which was a Model T. Now, Obviously, you know, Ford, everybody knows about how he totally changed the face of production and manufacturing forever. Yeah, that's what he's truthfully one of my biggest, you know, inspirations early on as a kid. Why I got started to love cars was just mm-hmm. learning through history. And, you know, in history class, it's never that fun. Yeah. Um, and all of a sudden we started talking about cars. And I'm like, all right, I'm interested now. What's going on? Yeah, exactly. Perked up yeah. and everything. And then just seeing this, you know, production, just the amount of cars that they were making, the way they were paying their employees, you know, just was this super, super good setup um, mm-hmm. early on in the American industry that obviously has, you know, long led on today. Exactly. And, you know, the, now it's it's all basically normal operating procedure for these manufacturing yeah, companies. They you still know, were, you know. He, he paved the way in more ways than one. Yes, he did. So just to kind of give you the numbers, so the very first Model T was completed in October of 1908 as a 1909 model. It took seven years until 1915, December 10th, when the one millionth was produced. And obviously, fast forward just nine years and another nine million had to been produced. So, I mean, that, that that's obviously huge extrapolation. Now, the uh, the record, the last million cars got churned out in just 132 working days. Not even a full year for that last million cars. That's ridiculous. That's awesome. What is that, 10,000 a day or something like that? Or, I mean, give or take some really rough math. <laughs> something. I don't feel like doing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, fast. Um, 
Speaking of fast, June 15, 1969, Jackie X and Jackie Oliver drove a Ford GT40 to victory at the 24 Hours of Le Mans. Yeah. I love Le Mans racing. Yeah, you do. Now, now, the cool part was <laughs> this was the very last race where they did the traditional Le Mans-style start. So, you know, it's where the drivers start at the opposite side of the track and they, you know, say run. go. They run to the opposite side of the track, hop in their cars, and you're supposed to put your safety your safety belt on, close your door, make sure you're all good, and then go. Obviously, you know how Porsche designed their car. That way they have the ignition on the left. So the driver could literally hop in, slide the ignition key in with one hand, and then put the shifter into first with the other hand and start at the same time and go to save precious seconds as opposed to some of the other cars. But this was the very last one because now that safety belts were mandated um, and, you know, normally in in other races, they'd be strapped in tight before the race. And, um, you know, one of the guys ended up dying. Uh, His name was John Wolf. Uh, He was killed presumably because he didn't put his safety belt on before he went and then he ended up wrecking. Now, Jackie X, who oddly enough ended up winning, good thing he had a car fast enough to win, Mm -hmm. but... Jackie X was like kind of the guy who said, all right, enough's enough. When the gun sounded, he was the only guy to walk across the track while everybody else sprinted. He sat in his car, put on his belt, and he was voluntarily at the back of the field. He literally let everybody go while he got himself ready. And over the race, they ended up coming around and winning. That's awesome. That is awesome. Underdog, you know, win right there. Gotta love it. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. And he was being safe. Yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> awesome. I mean, that, that's, that. Everybody's like probably like thinking like, oh, dude, he's being so cocky right now. Come yeah. on, now you're you're going to start at the back of the race. You're going to give up the race like that? No, he didn't. <laughs> <laughs> All right, June sixteenth, nineteen seventeen. I love this car. Um, Hundred and three years ago, Harry Miller completed his Golden Submarine, which was a car that he made for Barney Oldfield, who we talk about a little bit. Okay. Um, it basically was the first safety conscious race car ever. Um, So, you know, before this car, all cars were solely designed to be as light as they knew how to make them at the time and offered little to no protection. You know, it was basically safest just to jump out of the car before it wrecked into something. That's kind of how they they thought about (laughs) it. But this car had a steel roll cage inside of the driver's compartment. It was fully enclosed bodywork and oddly enough, very aerodynamically advanced. It was kind of teardrop shaped. Um, And it was also one of the very, very first cars to have been wind tested. They actually developed a, a like really rudimentary wind tunnel system for the car and and you know hooked up like the little streamers on it and and strings and actually you know did the yarn trick. Yeah. Um so it's you know very very early on for that. Now, the crazy part, it was the most expensive car in the world at the time, $35,000. It cost to make this car for Barney Oldfield. I'm sure if with inflations, I mean, well into the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Millions. Millions. Oh yeah. Yep. Um, it is crazy to think of how much they spent on this car, but he won a lot of races in it. Um, Harry Miller was able to build this thing so well that it stayed competitive for decades. Um, and, and this is kind of paying homage to Harry Miller and Fred Offenhauser and, you know, how well they were able to build IndyCar engines throughout the 30s and 40s and even mm. into the 50s, you know, cars that dominated. I mean, I think at one point, like 80% of the field was Offenhauser engines and Offenhauser (laughs) engines won like 10 years in a row. I can't remember the exact stats. I'll look them up, but they were 
bad to the bone. And this uh, four-cylinder engine, which produced 136 horsepower at the time, which was a lot, you know, back in 1917 for a, a car that was designed to go around a racetrack, still uh, almost five liters, 4.74 liters. Um, and it was just a sweet car, the Golden Submarine. You guys got to look it up and do some more research on it because it is it looks, totally worth it. It looks very interesting. It is. It looks. It doesn't look like it's from 1917. It almost looks like it was. It almost looks like it was designed for the future. It kind of was. Yeah. But when you look at it, you almost think of like some type of weird steampunk kind of vibe yeah. to it. You know what it's I mean? It's like a reverse airplane. And it also kind of looks like a light bulb. You know, like there's just a lot of different things to it. That it just That's looks really very cool. interesting. Yeah. All right. So moving forward, June 17th, 1994. Um, this one's pretty cool. Uh, about 95 million people in the United States watched a white Ford Bronco drive down the 405 with OJ Simpson in the back. <laughs> you know, we had to do this one. Um, yeah, of course, you know, the most watched car chase in the world transmitted live. Um, OJ, of course, was presumably holding a gun to the guy's head that was driving it. He was in the back seat. That's what the guy said. Um, and I, I don't doubt it, but anyway, yeah, his, his 1993 white Ford Bronco, um, would become famous for this. Yeah. I wonder how many people bought Broncos after this. Oh, I'm sure there's a lot. I'd buy a white Bronco. <laughs> I would too. I would too. The Bronco was a sweet car. I had a buddy in high school that had one. Um, his was pretty heavily modified. Well, now since the it's new awesome. Broncos have come back out, I love them. I'm not even a big truck guy, but you know, the Broncos look really cool. And I think I would take one of those over a Jeep. I really think I would. I would agree. Not that I buy a Jeep, just not the sports though. No, Auto no, sport. I don't like the Bronco Sport. Mm. I think those are those are hideous. That's a that's a there's Ford a difference. Escape. Anybody looking at them? Yeah, it's there's a, Ford a huge escape. difference. Yes. Now, if anybody's getting butthurt over this, I'm sorry you bought a Bronco Sport. I mean, what are you thinking? <laughs> it's Come on. not a Bronco. Yeah, it's not a. You bought a Ford Escape. It's like buying a Dodge Dart. <laughs> exactly. It's not a Dart. <laughs> it's not a Dart. <laughs> it's a Dodge Neon rebadged. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it's an Alfa Romeo. It's, yeah, Fiat. <laughs> Gotta love it. It's a Fiat. Uh, anyway, June 18th, Max, you'll like this one, 1927. Yes. The Nürburgring Motor Racing Circuit in Germany held its very first race. It wasn't for cars, though. It was actually a motorcycle race. But car racing began on the following day with uh, Mr. Rudolf Caracola winning in a Mercedes because Mercedes basically dominated all racing at yeah. that point in time, um, pretty much all the way up until 1955. And Mercedes Compressor. Yeah, exactly. I, I love that name. There's one name that Compressive. Mercedes has that they put on there. And truthfully, for the longest time, I could never understand it. You know, early on when I was getting into cars, I was like, why? AC compressor. Like, okay, it has AC. I never understood it until finally I realized. Forced induction. Compressor, forced induction. Yep. Okay, it makes sense. Yep, exactly. So I laugh every time I see the word compressor on the back of a Mercedes. Exactly. <laughs> That's funny. Now, keep in mind, 1927 Nürburgring. Think about this. It is not the Nürburgring that we know and love so much today. No. Um, when it first opened, of course, a lot of it wasn't even paved. It was, you know, just strictly the one-way toll road. Um, and prior to the 1971 changes, it had 174 corners. Yeah, it's twisty. It's also a beautiful place. I, it is cool. I never got to go on the track, unfortunately, and that there was something going on at the time that I was there. But just 
being in that area, like it's one of the most beautiful settings for a racetrack that oh, I've yeah. ever seen. I mean, it's not the most gorgeous, but just where you are, the way the mountains, everything around you, it's just beautiful. Picture place. perfect. It's one of my favorite places in the world. Yeah. And especially when you have uh, the roar of turbo flat sixes and yeah, V12s you know, off yeah. in the distance howling. So that makes aggressive. it just all that much better. Exactly. I could take a nap, bud. I could take <laughs> a nap. Just give me a mimosa and one of the yeah. zero gravity chairs. So if anybody has some connections, we'd love to <laughs> just camp out in the middle of the track. Oh, <laughs> all right. June 19th. 1902 last one up 118 years ago barney oldfield set a one mile speed record in his ford 999 i know i talk about barney oldfield and henry ford and the ford 999 a lot but this car and that dynamic duo really started what is now automotive culture and hot rodding and, and everything else i mean like this is one of the real starts to you know the competitive edge with an automobile and um it was actually it was pretty cool it wasn't the first time 60 miles an hour had been broken because that uh, award of course goes to camille janazzi with his uh la gemme content yeah. The, you know, the, the, the electric <laughs> torpedo car with Michelins on it that we talk yeah. about from time to time. But it was the first time that 60 miles an hour had been broken on a closed track. And that was actually at the Indianapolis fairgrounds. Um, this was before the Indy 500 was mm-hmm. even around. <laughs> See, I feel like if they made a movie about this, you know, these cars and the Ford 999, we should make it. It would be called slow but furious, you know, like a play on fast and furious. No, it, 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 it'd be called it'd be called quickish but polite. I like it. We would we would name the movie indubitably. <laughs> I want to go fast, but I just don't know how. All right. Anyway, I think that that about wraps up yes, this week does. in automotive history. Before the jokes start going yeah, severely downhill, we better let you yeah. guys off the hook. Yeah, and we'll catch you guys next week. Thank you guys very much for listening.